Uh, A.W. Tozer uh, writes in his classic work, The Pursuit of God, complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Complacency is this feeling of, of smugness, of uncritical satisfaction with, with oneself or one's accomplishment. So an uncritical satisfaction with oneself is a deadly foe for all spiritual growth. When was the last time that you critically examined your walk with the Lord? Every fall, uh, football teams are uh, accused of falling into complacency and losing games that they should never lose. Uh, likewise, many Christians also fall into complacency. They lose battles in their life that they should easily win. Complacency in one's spiritual walk opens the door to the town of stupid, where Christians often drift into and into secret sins and destructive patterns that cripple their life. Listen again to Tozer's quote. Now, I want you to hear it in context. He says, Complacency is a deadly foe for all spiritual growth. And he gives the solution. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He wants to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us, he waits so long, so very long in vain. Spiritual complacency, when we drift in our walk with the Lord, it's because we have a lack of desire for Christ. I mean, do you desire to know Jesus? Do you desire to, to have Jesus' life manifested through you? Are you consumed with His glory? Are you zealous for His name? Are you driven by the mission He's given us? Every morning, I drink coffee. Praise God for coffee. Amen? I don't drink coffee like a real coffee drinker because I have to add a little cream in my coffee. And this season, the fall season, I, I'm using a pumpkin spice creamer, and it is delicious. And right there on the side of this uh, coffee creamer, it says, shake well before use. I believe that it is God's desire to shake us well before we can be effectively used by him. Complacency, this lulls us to sleep while Christ-centeredness wakes us up. So I pray this morning through this message that I will help just kind of shake you up to be ready to use, be used by the Lord. I really believe this was the intent of the Lord's words when he penned them to uh, the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Laodicea was a wealthy city. It was on the Roman postal route. It was kind of like the, a Roman main uh, trade route. It was actually the last stop on that circuit of seven churches we've been looking at, the Roman postal route. It was known for its this soft, raven-like uh, wool that it was used for clothing. It was also known for this, this famous medical school, specifically for this eye salve to, to help treat eye illness. The church of Laodicea fell into the victim of prosperity. Like Thyatira, commercial success there was determined by one's cooperation with the cultic practices of the day. It, it appears that this church had compromised, had been so compromised its integrity 
and have just fallen in the trap for financial gain. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to ask you a series of questions to help, help you shake you and ask yourself, are you complacent? The first question is, who is your authority? Who is your authority? Jesus begins his letter establishing from the outset that he is the one true authority. He gives three titles to himself. And each title, I think he's speaking to uh, a contrast of the Christians in, in Laodicea. Look at verse 14 of our text this morning. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. This is only the second place in all of Scripture where the name Amen is given as a, as a title. The other place it appears in is Isaiah 65, verse 16, which reads this way. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, or the God of Amen. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, or the God of Amen, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. The Hebrew word for truth there is Amen. Amen was used to confirm or verify a hymn or a, a prayer. Jesus used that word often in his, in his own ministry to confirm a solemn, important truth that was coming to his hearers. Jesus here is establishing that his word can be trusted. He is the Amen, unlike the church of the Laodiceans who were fickle. And again, he says that he's referred to himself as the faithful and true witness. If you remember the beginning of this, of this uh, letter to, to, the, to the churches um, along this, this route, Jesus refers to himself as the true and faithful witness in, in 1.5, emphasizing his faithfulness to be a witness unto death, the cross. In Revelation, when you hear, see the word witness, you should think martyrdom. A, a true witness in Revelation, like Antipas in chapter 2, is one who's willing to die for their faith. Jesus was willing to show God's love to us by taking the cross for us. While the Laodiceans were so unwilling to sacrifice even material gain to show Christ to the surrounding area. They were compromised and complacent. So much so that little of their lives reflected Christ. The third title we see here is that... Uh, he calls himself the beginning of creation. Now, this would have been a very familiar phrase, especially to the Laodiceans, which is a, a sister church of the Colossians. You remember that great hymn of, of Christ in Colossians chapter 1? Hear me, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, and in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in, in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the author of creation, and he's the beginning of the new creation through his resurrection from the dead. See, the Laodiceans had forgotten who was the true authority. They'd forgotten the reality that Jesus Christ is the only one in control. They claimed Christ with their lips, but they were functioning like atheists. They were living as their own sovereign, autonomous from Christ. Jesus was reminding them that He alone is in control. And He alone is the source of wealth and power. 
It was interesting when Daniel prayed, he said that our, our, our culture easily drifts from Christ. It easily has our mind focused on other things around us. That really was the problem of, of, of the Christians in Laodicea. They were so immersed in looking at the temporal things around us, much like our American culture, that they had for, forgotten Christ. What they truly believed is that their wealth was given to them by their own efforts, as if they did not need the Lord. This is nothing new. God has been warning about this from the beginning of his people. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is this powerful reminder that this danger is always there. He says, God's word, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. How do you view your wealth? Do you view it as primarily yours or the Lord's? What about your home, your car? Let's shake up your view of wealth. And here's what my fear is. Sometimes I'm going to, I'm going to ask you questions throughout this message. And I think that if you don't take these questions and, and let them go deep and, and sink into your heart, they will just pass through your mind. There are some of you who need to do some serious thinking about your walk with the Lord. Some of you have been complacent, not in all things, but in certain areas of your life. So what I'm asking you when these questions are, are raised, to apply them to your heart. How often are your decisions primarily made by money? How often is your peace primarily governed by your bank account? How often are you anxious about money? Or do you pray about big purchases or, or how often you should visit uh, stores to get a specialty drink like coffee, since I brought it up earlier? Are you unwilling maybe to admit that you have a problem with your spending or a problem with debt? Friend, if God is the amen, the faithful and true witness who died for your sins, if he's the beginning of all creation, the first word from the dead, is he not trustworthy with determining your resources and how you should use them? One of the reasons we do not seek the Lord regarding our wealth is because we are afraid what he's going to ask us to do with it. We want to hold on to it so we don't ask the Lord what to do with it, afraid that he may ask us to give it away. Or he may ask us to, to not live in a certain way or a certain lifestyle. We should instead be asking God, can I give to, to missions? Can I give more of my resources away? Do you view God as your authority over everything? And it's not just as our authority, but as our good, wise, loving authority who has what's best in mind for you. So often we don't ask the Lord because we think that he's going to do something bad for us. He's going to take things away from us. But beloved, God knows far better than we do. See, the Latiosians were not struggling with a mental assent with God's authority. They, they would say, yes, God is our authority, but in practical application, their lives were far from God. So the second question, how is your application? How is your application? Wisdom is not knowing what to do, but, but actually doing it. Jesus is not concerned with your head knowledge, but how the knowledge governs your life. 
So in Revelation 3, 15 and 16, we see this stunning rebuke. I know your works. You neither cold nor hot. Would that you rather cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's a stunning rebuke. I'm sure if you've been in church uh, for any number of years, you have heard this sermon preached uh, and kind of chastised the congregation for kind of a a, a Christian spiritual lukewarmness. Uh, I think that may be there, uh, but I think the context of Laodicea helps us understand what's really happening here. Laodicea was a a prosperous city, uh, but it it was also one that had no water supply. It had these aqueducts built from Aeropolis and um, Colossae that kind of funneled water into the, the town. Aeropolis uh, was, was kind of known for these hot mineral springs that brought healing, while Colossae was kind of known for this pure, uh, cold drinking water that was kind of life-giving. What Jesus is saying here is that you are providing no healing to the city of Laodicea. You are pro- providing no life because your life is compromised. Your life has drifted from the truth of God's word. I would rather have you bring healing or bring life to the people. But because you do neither, I would rather vomit you out. I would rather spit you out of my mouth. The thing is, it's not that they they really had no spiritual life in them. They were bringing no good to the community. So God's displeased with his church. He was like the the fig tree in Matthew 21 when Jesus said, let it wither, because it was producing no fruit. This city was experiencing no spiritual healing and no life because of the compromising witness of the church. Jesus says he will vomit out the church for their lack of witness for his namesake. If I can be honest, I think this is often maybe the church in America, the church in, in Laodicea. So let me ask you who are here, Have you applied the gospel to your life? Friend, have you decided to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior? We have all sinned and need a Savior. God has provided a way to him through his Son. Jesus died for us, and the Bible says that he was raised for us. Anyone who puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope for salvation will be saved. Now remember, it is not the amount of your faith that saves you, but it is the object of your faith that saves you. We must have faith in Jesus Christ to be saved from hell. Now, many of us don't want to talk about hell. But here's the thing. In the quietness of your own heart, when you're alone and thinking about eternity, you know there's a hell. Because if you didn't know, you would not fear death. But we do fear death. Because there is a literal place called hell. And Jesus has provided you a way not to go there. This is the amazing thing of the Bible, is that we deserve to go to hell because of our sins, because we have wronged God, and God says, no, I sent my son to die for you, to be raised for you, so you have a hope and a chance to to turn from your sins and trust in Christ. That's the message of the Bible. If you turn from your sins and trust in Christ, you will be saved. So if you are here and you are, are know that yourself to be a non-Christian, would I just challenge you, before you leave today, talk to me, talk to someone, and ask, how do you live for Christ? 
How do you turn from living for yourselves and trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? But church, have you applied the gospel to your life? You know, the gospel, the gospel is not the diving board, as one writer says. It's, it's the whole pool. We never move on. We want our lives saturated by the gospel. It should affect every area of our lives. And if we desire that the gospel would affect everything about us, every area of our life, it would help us to drift from being complacent. Now, there's always room to grow. Now, I think some of us can, can hear the words of John Newton. I shared this on Tuesday at a Bible study. John Newton said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Listen, we are all works in progress. But we are in progress. We should desire to grow. This is why sometimes in our life, people, we need to be shaken up. Sometimes God shakes us up with trials. Sometimes God shakes us up through discipline. We should labor and strive to go deeper with the Lord Jesus Christ. We should want to grow in our love for His Word. We should want to grow in our love for Him, and our love for each other, and our love for the lost. And we should want that. But do we? I mean, do we truly want that? We should, but that may not be our reality. God may have to shake us up. He desires to have an intimate relationship with you. He desires that we would know Him deeply and be used by Him. So are you applying the gospel in your life? One way you can, can tell that is, is the third question. The third question. Um, I had two fingers up. That was a joke. Thank you. What do you appreciate? Right? What do you value in your life? What's the most important thing that, that you value? We can determine this by... Uh, by just watching our life. Look, look, look what the Latiosians valued. They valued their wealth, but Jesus says they were spiritually poor. They valued their self-sufficiency. I need nothing. And yet they were in desperate need of a Savior. Look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus kind of shows their true spiritual condition. They were rotten to the core. Their hearts were deceitful. They were far from God. These are really five aspects of the same condition. And what Jesus does here is he looks at all the things that the city and that the church were trusting in, and he kind of uncuts them one at a time. They trusted in their wealth. So what does Jesus say? You are actually poor. You're spiritually bankrupt. They claimed excellent sight. They were known, remember, for that, for that eye saw from this famous school, and yet they were blind. They were known for this, 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 this beautiful raven-like wool that would clothe the, the whole entire town and the surrounding areas, and yet they were naked, a sign of shame before a holy God. Everything they boasted in or appreciated about themselves was, a, was flipped to show their wretched state. What we value in our lives reveals our spiritual condition. So if you value the opinion of others, for example, 
you may be more willing to gossip or lie or unwilling to speak the truth because of fear of losing the, the opinion or reputation of in others' eyes. If you value your wealth, you may be more willing to use your resources for, for personal gain rather than the, the corporate benefit of the body of Christ. It is clear here that the Latiocenes were valuing the wrong thing. So, turning back to you, what do you appreciate? What do you value? Now, I'm not just saying what you can say in your mind right now. Of course I value Christ. If someone looked at your time, what would your time communicate what you value? If someone looked at your checkbook, what would your checkbook communicate what you, you value? How about your thoughts? When, you, when you're in, in the quietness of your own thoughts, where does your mind instantly drift? All right, can I ask you to, to, to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to, to show you what you truly value? Not what you say that you value. This is the hard reality, right? This is our actual theology. This is what we say we believe. This is how we actually live. This is our actual theology. And I think too often in the, in the church, we don't do the necessary heart work to, to, to prune our own lives. John Flavel writes this, The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. It is the hardest work. Heart work is hard indeed. Listen, Jesus is after the hearts of the Laodiceans. He's after your heart today as well. See, in his kindness, he lovingly invites the church back to himself. Listen to what he says. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Jesus goes back and he addresses every one of their blind spots, their wealth, their blindness, and their nakedness, and then he says, come to me. Come to me. He invites them to be spiritually rich with, rich with gold refined by the fire. He invites them to clothe, be clothed with white garments to cover up their, their nakedness. He invites them to receive true salve, true balm for the eyes that they may truly see. What Jesus is doing here is he's inviting people to himself. Come to me. It's the most astonishing, amazing part of this entire text. That he comes to a people who are wretched, who are, who are poor, who are blind, and who are naked. And he says, come to me. This spiritual complacent church is being reproved and disciplined so that they can know the Lord. Now, I would much rather encourage people <laughs> than have a, a hard rebuke. Right? I mean, who, who likes to have that hard conversation? But listen. Discipline is, is from God, and it is a good thing. Parents, disciplining your children is an act of love. Pastor, elders, disciplining the members of this church is an act of love. Church members disciplining each other is a gift of God and an act of love. We should desire to be disciplined. 
Yes, I said that. We should be desired to be to disciplined. Not to, to be excommunicated from the church, that sort of discipline, but to be to be trained in the righteousness of Christ. If you desire to be disciplined so that you could grow in Christ, you're not going to be complacent. Because you're going to be going to be constantly moving and growing towards the Lord. If we don't desire discipline, in many ways we don't desire growth. The righteous should look for discipline. This is one of the major themes in Proverbs. Take time one Saturday afternoon and read through the entire book of Proverbs. And just look at how many times the righteous handle criticism. Here's one in Proverbs 15, 31. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Friends, we all have areas of growth. By God's grace and his kindness, he, he allowed me to see an area of growth in the way I use words just this past week. Now, I can, I can buck up when someone tells me I'm doing something wrong, or I can drop the arms and say thank you, because I want to grow like Christ. I want to be formed more and more into the image of our Savior. So do you appreciate, value discipline? Do you value growth? Or are you complacent? Do you have an uncritical satisfaction with yourself and your achievements? Complacency is a deadly foe to spiritual growth. Last question. How will you answer? How will you answer? Beloved, Jesus desires to have fellowship with you. There are excellent statements in the gospel about the purpose in which Jesus came. So Mark 10:45, for that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke 19:10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And Matthew 11:19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So hear me, Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many to seek and to save that which was lost so that they could eat with the Lord Jesus. Jesus desires to have intimate fellowship with his people. This is the invitation that you see in in Revelation 3.20. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. So Jesus here is surprisingly outside the church. The church had drifted so far from the Lord that there wasn't even a a definable remnant in the church. And yet Jesus still comes and still desires to to eat with us. And to share a meal in that culture was a a sign of intimate friendship. In many ways, it was the beginning of, of reconciliation. There may be some of you here who need to invite someone to a meal to to bring about reconciliation. Jesus desired to be reconciled with his church. He's knocking on the door of the church. Now, we can make that application. Yes, Jesus wants lost people to come to his church. But here, he's speaking to you, believer, the complacent one who has drifted from Christ. He's asking to come in. He's not forcing himself in the door. He simply stands and knocks. How will you answer? Will you repent and let him in? Or will you keep Christ shut out by saying satisfied? In your complacency. 
too many of us. We, we feel the desire for change. And yet we stay satisfied. Christ is asking you to, to have fellowship with Him, and yet we are satisfied with the things of this world. What thing in your life do you not want to give up? Where are you satisfied? What area do you love more than Christ? How will you answer the glorious knock of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? The one who, who condescends himself and invites you, a wayward, complacent, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked sinner, to his table. He wants you at his table. It's absolutely profound that the God of the universe, a holy and righteous God, wants you at his table. And he says, just open the door. Invite me into your life. He's come all that way. How will you answer? Now, notice what I, what I, I didn't say. How should you answer? The question is, how will you answer? How we answer determines our future. Look at what the text says. When we open the door for Jesus, we, we not only get to, to participate in the, the great marriage supper of the Lamb, but we get to reign and rule with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Look what the text says. Revelation 3.21 The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who keeps their heart in Christ will be granted, given, the privilege seat with Christ. Remember, it's not our labors, but it's given to us because of the labor of Christ. Jesus conquered death and the grave through His resurrection from the dead. He sat down with His Father on His glorious throne. We have read that three or four times already in various scriptures this morning. He invites us to share in that victory. 2 Timothy 2.12 if we endure with Him, we will reign with Him. So Jesus may want to shake you up before use. He wants you to wake up from your complacency. Now listen, not everyone here is complacent. But there may be, who, those of you who are walking strong with Christ may have areas within your life that you're complacent in. And He wants all of you. Maybe a, a holy shaking of the Lord. So that, the, that our lives will be mixed by the, the, the good spiritual nutrients of a life devoted to Christ. Complacency is a deadly foe for spiritual growth. But hear me, critical self-examination is essential for a life saturated by the Spirit of God and consecrated unto Christ. We've been looking at these seven letters over the last months, last two months. Every letter le le reads the same way. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friend, Jesus means for these words to change you. We do not want to be hearers only, but doers of His Word. So I pray that when we approach the text of, of God's Holy Word, that you would allow it to shake you from your complacency and spiritual malaise so that you can be a faithful and true witness unto Christ, daily dying to yourself, so that one day... You will reign with Him 
on his throne in the age to come. Let's pray. Father, we all need to be shaken from time to time. God, we thank you for this word that you spoke to the, to the Christians at Latiosia 2,000 years ago. We pray that we would allow it to apply to our own hearts today. God, I pray again that you would take this um, humble offering that I've given to your people, God, that you would apply it to their hearts and show them areas of their life where they need to be shaken, God. God, we want and we desire to become like Christ. So, God, help us learn to love discipline, to love the painful process of growth, that we may be a better reflection of your great and glorious Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.